Will you bow your heads with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that we can be here this morning, and uh, we pray that as we enter into your rest, and that as we open up the, your word, that you would give us a fresh understanding of what has been true and of what we've read. And so now we pray, Lord, that you would clear all of the distractions in our minds of all the things that have to get done later or tomorrow or the next day, and that you would just help us for this moment to be fully present to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning, we, we don't have a PowerPoint, and so I'm going to be reading from the NIV, which is the same Bible translation that you have in the pew in front of you. So I'm going to invite as many of you who can to grab that red Bible that is in front of you. And, and if there's a couple extra and you need one, please, I invite you to share those with other people. One of the things that is certain in our lives is that there is pain and there is suffering and there is anxiety and that there are all sorts of unexpected circumstances in our lives. Isn't that true? For any number of days that you have lived, there are things that happen that you didn't expect to happen the way they did. And there's suffering. And we know that suffering comes from the, as the result of the original sin that we found in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were given rules or a way by which to live, and they didn't do it. They decided that they, in a sense, knew better than what God had for them. They made a decision, and as a result, it has been thousands and thousands of years where we have had to live into that same that same pattern that Adam and Eve lived into. As a result of sin, the Bible tells us that death enters the world, and where death enters the world, decay enters the world. And all of a sudden, the, the world that God had dreamed of, the world that God had created, was no longer the way that it was supposed to be. We all experience hardship in our lives. We all experience um, unexpected obstacles in our lives. And whenever we do suffer, we always look for the answer, why? We always ask the question, why, God? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening now? I've done all of this for you. Why am I going through this? And for those of you who are further along in the, life, in the journey of life, those of you who are more advanced in age with more wisdom, you probably can't come up with any better of an answer to the question of why things happen and why suffering happens than some of us who are closer to the beginning of our journey. Isn't that true? Because even if you have a pat answer from Scripture, it's not a very good explanation. Nothing is ever good enough for us to know why things happen the way that they do. What we do know is that things do happen. Obstacles will arise. Suffering will take place in your life. And so instead of asking the question as to why this happens, I think we have to take the approach of that it happens and because suffering happens, it's what do we do with it. I once heard somebody say that in suffering, you have two choices. You can either allow it to make you bitter, or you can allow it to make you better. It's what we do. Oftentimes when we suffer, it's like, it's like we've been living our life however we want to, whatever we want to do with our own philosophies, but the moment that suffering enters into our life, all of a sudden, best Christians, almost like if we're just good enough prayers, or if we pray enough, then God will answer our prayers. And the truth is, it's not what happens when things go wrong. Faith is determined all of the moments leading up to when things go 
wrong. It is all of the faith that you had beforehand in this God and your relationship in God that helps you to get through the difficult circumstances. Now, the, the Bible doesn't really tell us why we suffer. It just simply tells us that we suffer. And sin is basically the result of it. But even that may not be a satisfactory answer. And so I want to look at this morning and look at, at what Scripture says about life and suffering a little bit. And I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans eight twenty-eight, And it says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? All things work for good for those who love the Lord. And even though you may find yourself in the midst of a circumstance that you don't have an answer for as to why it's happening, the Bible tells us, and we can, be, we can put our faith in the God of the Bible and the promises of the Bible, that all things are working for good for those who love the Lord. Now, some of you may be saying, but pastor, you don't know what it is that I'm going through, or you don't know what's come up in my life in the last couple of days, or, or you don't even know what come up, came up in my life this morning, so you don't know what you're talking about. And all I can tell you is that you can cling to the promises of the Bible, that in all things, God works for good for those who love him. Even if you feel like you can't look beyond the present moment, we can know that we believe in a God who is working all things for good. And Paul says in verse 31, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, then who can be against us? And then I want to skip down a few more verses. And verse 35 says this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then skip down to verse 37. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. And even in the midst of any pain and suffering that you may be experiencing, we can have the assurance that we can have the joy that God loves us no matter what. There is nothing in all creation, there is nothing that you can do because you are a part of creation. There is nothing that you can do that can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. And there is gospel in that message, and there is truth, and there is beauty. Because even though the walls may be closing in on you, you can know that God loves you. And because God loves you, somehow and some way, all things will work together for good. So there's a story in the Bible that I want to read with you, parts of it, because we would be here all morning if we had to read all of it. But if you open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 37. 
Genesis chapter 37, verse 1. It's a story that if you've been a Christian for any number of years, if you grew up in the church, you probably know this. But for those of you who may be guests or who maybe haven't read these stories, I want to kind of take us through the story and see how what Paul says in Romans 8 works out in the everyday real life of, of, of people. So Genesis chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the son of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. So Joseph has a father named Jacob, and he has other brothers, and Joseph saw something that his brothers were doing or not doing, and like siblings sometimes do, they go and tell their parents about what their brothers and sisters are doing, right? We've, if you haven't done it, it's been done to you. So this is what's happening. Joseph goes to his father and he says, this is what these brothers of mine are doing, and so it's a bad report. He's, he's in essence telling him they're doing something wrong. Verse 3, now, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and made him, and he made him a richly ornamented robe for him, or a, a, a coat of many colors, which his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them. They hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now we know that today, if you have children, you don't have a favorite child in your family. But there are some people who might. And so what we find here, and this is what the Bible tells us, that Joseph was the favorite son of his father. And the Bible tells us that it's because he was the son of his old age, which meant that he didn't expect to have any more kids. His father didn't expect to have any more kids. He, he was like, okay, it's done, it's over. I'm in the twilight of my life. I don't expect to have children. My wives perhaps are too old. Whatever it was, he, couldn't, he wasn't expecting to have any more children. But because Joseph was given to him, you see that you know, the children are a blessing from God. Time and time again in the Old Testament, we find that when God gives people children, they are blessings. They're not a curse, but they're a blessing. And so we find that he loved Joseph more than all his other brothers, all his other sons. Now, this is what's happening, okay? Joseph, 17 years old, he comes back and he's a tattletale. He tells on, on his brothers about something they did wrong. And then Joseph has two dreams. The first dream is of, of him and his brothers, of, or, or rather, yeah, bringing in the sheaves. So it's harvest time, and they're bundling up these sheaves. And in the center, there's one sheave. I know that's a weird word, but it's like a bundle. Just think of a bundle. And then there's like seven other bundles around it. And in this dream, Joseph dreams that the seven bundles in the circle are bowing down to the sheave in the middle. He tells this to his brothers. His brothers that already can't stand him. His brothers that already hate him because clearly he is the father's favorite son. And then this Joseph tells his brothers, one day you're basically going to bow down to me. They said, what, are we going to bow down to you? And he says, I'm just telling you what the dream says. And then the Bible on the very next story tells us that Joseph has a second dream. And in the second dream, there are stars and moons, and all of these stars and moons are bowing down to, what was it in the middle? I can't even remember now. It skipped my mind. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. 
And so again, his brothers are like, are you telling us that we are going to bow down to you? You mean you are going to rule us? If they didn't already hate him enough, they hated him even more. Because now they are just, now he's saying, you guys will bow down to me. So as you can imagine, and as some of you know the story, it doesn't end well for Joseph. So if we look at Genesis 37, verses 17, and we're going to read a little bit. So if you have your Bible, we're just going to read this so you kind of grasp the immensity of the story. Genesis 37, verse 17. Joseph is sent out by his father to go and see how his brothers are doing, and this is where the story picks up. They had moved on from here, the brothers, the man said, and I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we will see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. Okay, so Reuben had a softer heart, and he says, no, we can't kill him. Just, let's just put him in a pit with the intention of coming back, rescuing him. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, this multicolored robe, this beautiful robe that the father had given him. So if it wasn't enough that he had this, right, he was in essence showing it off because he was wearing it everywhere. The richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty and there was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. So his brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes, he went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there, where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the blood in the robe. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. And his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said in mourning, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. And his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, to the captain of the guard. I know that's a long story to read, and we don't normally do that. But I wanted you to get the sense of what was happening here. This 17-year-old boy, do we have any 17-year-olds in the, in, the, uh, in the church today? Okay, so our youth and, and one other. <laughs> 
17 years old. I was a senior in high school. I can't even imagine what it would feel like, not only to be hated by my siblings, but to be thrown into a hole to die. What would you be thinking? What was Joseph thinking? Was he thinking, this is it, this is where I'm going to die, this is where it all ends? Was he thinking, maybe somebody will come and save me? And then they pull him out of this hole, and then they sell him, in essence, into slavery. The worst possible thing, I suppose, that could happen, they take him and they sell him for some stuff, and they sell him into slavery, indentured servant, servitude. Now, we can't read the rest of what happens in the meantime right after this, so I invite you to keep reading you know, the next few chapters if you have a chance after church today, after lunch. He goes from all of these experiences, and he continues to have dreams, and if this isn't the worst that happens, he then gets thrown into jail, and he gets forgotten Someone tells him, hey, I will remember you. I will tell them about you so they can get you out of jail. He gets accused of having an affair with a woman that wasn't even true. Right? It wasn't even close. He did the, the honest and, and, and the integrity-filled thing. He runs from this woman that is trying to, to have a, this affair with him, but he gets accused of it, and he gets thrown into jail again. He was about 18, 19 years old. He lived a really full life before he was even 21 years old. More than anyone should ever experience. And what the Bible tells us, and as it goes on, there, because there is a famine in the land of Egypt. And because of some of the Joseph had, he, 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 he came to, um, they were, he was given more responsibility and more power, second in command to Pharaoh. And it was because of his dreams, it was because of what God had showed him in dreams, that he was able to save up all of this grain and all of this food, so that for the seven years of famine, everyone in the region would have food. And what we find is that his brothers would later come to Egypt to try to trade or beg for food so that they could kind of stave off this famine. And it was Joseph who was in power to make the decision whether they would have food or not. To which we come when they all find out that it's Joseph. After all these years, they didn't even recognize him. They didn't know it was him. His brothers were at his mercy. And this is what Joseph says. What you intended to harm me, God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. What you intended to harm me, God intended for good. And what we find is that sometimes we can't see beyond what is right in front of us because we feel like the pain is too much. C.S. Lewis, he, he writes about this, and he calls it the laziness of grief or the laziness of suffering. And what he means, and he writes a little bit about this, is that when you're experiencing a situation where things are all bad and they're all falling apart and you're heartbroken or you're betrayed or you feel like someone has stabbed you in the back or whatever it is, that sense of laziness sets in where you're laying in bed and you just don't want to get out of bed. Where shaving, he says, shaving, it, your arm is just too heavy to even shave. Your arms are too heavy to even eat or drink water. Your body is too heavy for you to just get through the day. And he says, when you feel this grief and this tremendous pain, it's like you can't go further. I think at some point in all of your lives, you have all felt that. We have all felt the heaviness of pain and suffering, of anxiety of sadness, of anger, 
And what we find in the biblical narrative is that even in those moments, all things work together for those who love the Lord. Just because you can't see beyond the present moment doesn't mean that God doesn't have a plan beyond that moment. And if you have been building up your faith in God, God will carry you through those moments. There's a, there's a verse in Jeremiah 29. And if, you, and if you come to Jeremiah 29, it's the verse that we often quote. We usually quote it for our youth, or we quote it at, you know, you know, kind of as an inspirational quote. And we quote Jeremiah 29, 11, that says, God says, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And we love that. That's a great message. That's a great passage. That gives us hope. That fills us with purpose because we now feel like no matter what we're going through, we have purpose. But what we neglect to do is we forget to read the verse that's in front of it. So Jeremiah 29, 10, 29 verse 10 says this. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. The Israelites, who this message is written for in Jeremiah, had been in, they had been exiled. They didn't have a homeland. Imagine someone coming in, taking over our country, and making us go live in, I don't know, Canada or Mexico or, I don't know, wherever, right? Just anywhere else. And you're forced to do that, and nobody, you don't have a say in it. You just, someone comes in, they take over, and then they make you go somewhere else. That's what was happening here. The Israelites were taken out of their homeland. They were taken out of their homeland and dispersed around the entire empire. And so God says here, when the 70 years are up of your exile, I will come to you and I will fulfill my promise to bring you back to this place, this lo their homeland. And then he says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. When they had reached their wit's end and they had been dispersed around the entire empire and the worst case scenario has already been happening to the Israelites, God says, I will come and I will rescue you. I have not forgotten you. And that message is still true for you and for me today. That in the midst of the unforeseen, that in the midst of the worst case scenario, God is still working. God still has a plan. All things will work together. And not even the worst of your situations can separate you from the love of God. And if nothing can separate you from the love of God, then we know that we have the assurance of joy and the promise that God will help us to supersede even the worst of circumstances. And then I have two more verses that I want to look at before I close. Proverbs 16, verse 1 says this, To man belongs the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the reply of the tongue. So to us belong the plans of our heart. We all have plans. Some of us have five-year plans, 10-year plans, 15-year plans. Some of us have laid out our lives or tried to lay out our lives. And, and, and anyone here who has experienced life can tell you that even the best laid plans can be interrupted. 
Even your five-year or ten-year plan can be interrupted if God needs you for a special task. And so there's nothing wrong with setting your plan. There's nothing wrong with having goals. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But just know, be open to where God is leading you because God may be leading you in a direction that isn't where your heart is going. Now, how do you figure that out? I don't know. You'll figure it out after. (laughs) Because it's not always easy, is it? Is it easy to know exactly where God is leading you? Hardly ever. That's why it requires faith. And then the last verse I want to read from, from Proverbs 16, verse 9. In his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Now, we could get into a whole another three-hour conversation about whether we have free will or does God control everything. And that's a conversation that, that is a part of our Western mind, our, this, this enlightenment mind where we have to have a reason or we have to have an explanation for everything that we believe. So it's either we have free will or God's in control of everything. That's kind of how it comes. That's how, kind of how we break things down in our lives. Either God controls everything or we have free will. But that is something that, is, that, is, that has, a, has arisen in human consciousness only in the last 500 years. Because when the Bible writers wrote these stories in the Old Testament, when they told the stories of how God had been there for them, it wasn't either we have free will or God is in control. It's God is sovereign over all. And we do have, you do make decisions. You make, it, you make decisions every single day, all throughout the day. And so in a sense, you have free will, and God is also in control of all things. According to what the Bible teaches us is that we do have the ability to choose, but ultimately God's will will be done. And that all things work together for good. So even in your decision making, God is working to make all things good for you who loves God. In the Old Testament, there's all sorts of stories that don't make sense to us. How can a man be swallowed by a whale and live to tell about it? But they weren't asking, how is that possible? All they understood is that is a story of God's great power. For us, we ask, well, why, why does Job have to suffer? Why does Job have to go through losing his entire family? They weren't asking those questions. They were just understanding that God is ultimately in control and God will vindicate all those who are innocent. They weren't asking these questions of how can this be. That is a modern phenomenon in our world. So for us, the best that we can do is we can hold on to the promises that all things, even the worst of our situations, even the most pain that we feel, even the unexpected circumstances, no matter what they are, even if you find yourself in the pit as Joseph did. Remember that your life probably isn't worse than his being sold into slavery. And yet God uses that for good. And then the last example I want to give is that of Jesus on the cross. That was horrible what happened to Jesus. Jesus gives up his life. He dies. And out of the most horrible circumstance of an innocent man dying on a cross, God works good from that because it was because of that that you have been given the assurance of salvation. So when you find yourself in a situation where you can't explain what's going on, know that God is working all things and God's will will ultimately be done and we can rest in that promise.
this pain I wonder if I'll ever find my way I wonder if this life could really change at all And all this earth Could all that is lost ever be found could a garden come up from this ground at all? You make beautiful things You make beautiful things out of the dust You make beautiful things you make beautiful things out of us and All around Hope is springing up from this old ground out of chaos life is being found in you and you make beautiful things you make beautiful things out of the dust you make beautiful things you make beautiful things out of us and you make beautiful things you make beautiful things out of the dust and you make beautiful things you make beautiful things out of us sing that with me. You make me new. You are making me new. And you 